we are going to start in Isaiah 40, and if things go to plan, end up in Isaiah 48, because it's been a minute. Need to rewind a bit and re remind ourselves where we are and where we were. Thank you for the grace allowing me to step out for a couple months. Thank you, Rob, for stepping in, freeing up a little extra bandwidth at the end of the year as I continue to deal with some long COVID stuff. Just a little extra mental elbow room was a blessing, but I've missed Isaiah. Looking forward to diving back in and chewing some good meat. It was really the second time we interrupted our study in Isaiah, which made me very reluctant to do it. If you recall, we paused for the summer, and that was planned, and that was planned well in advance because we were coming up on a natural break point at the end of chapter 39. And so we paused during the summer, the way that we have several summers recently. Natural break point, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah you probably recall or you already knew. First 39 chapters focus on the Assyrian Empire and the clear and present danger that the Assyrian Empire posed to Judah, the southern of the divided kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah begins with prophecy, prophecy that reads like prophecy. He begins prophesying around 740 AD, but by the end of those 40, uh, 39 chapters, 40 years have gone by, and he's speaking history as it's unfolding. He goes from talking about things that are going to happen to describing them as they happen, the invasion of Sennacherib in 701 BC. After which there's a break, not just because we decided that there was one. There's actually a natural break in the text because when he picks up again in chapter 40, Isaiah is back in prophetic mode. He's speaking into the future. He's writing, actually, to future Judah, future Israel, in exile. Because where Assyria fails in 701 B.C., we know Babylon succeeds in 586 B.C. Jerusalem falls, the temple is burned, and th those remaining citizens of note are carried off. There were three previous exiles before that. That's the third and the final one. Anyone who was worth dragging into exile was dragged. There's a difference in subject matter, is the point, beginning in chapter 40. There's a difference in prophetic scope. There's also a difference in style and tone, leading some, leading many, actually, to speculate or, or to affirmatively declare that it's written by someone else. This is the so-called Deutero-Isaiah theory, because that makes it sound smart. Deutero, two. Two different sections, two different styles, somewhat two different subjects, well, it must be two different authors. And then, and then since the Deutero-Isaiah theory was popularized in the 1800s, there are, you can find people who say, oh, there, there's three Isaiahs, there's four Isaiahs. Because in academia, in order to get published, you have to disagree with what's been said already. So there's one. No, there's not one, there's two. No, there's not two, there's six. The problem is that Jesus disagrees with all of them. 
This is review, but it's still important because people stumble over this. So I want to invest just a couple moments speaking to it. The idea that there's not one Isaiah, there's two, there's more. Once you buy into that, it's, it's a very small step to, well, I can't trust anything that's in the Bible. How do I believe that anything is, is, is what it claims to be? Your response to the Deutero-Isaiah theory is John chapter 12. You can flip over there with me or, or, or you can just listen. But John chapter 12, we read beginning in verse 37. John says, although he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they, the Jewish leadership, did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, quoting from Isaiah, and to whom has the Lord of the arm been revealed? You've probably recognized that that's from Isaiah 53. Therefore, verse 39 of John 12, they could not believe, because Isaiah again said, Verse 40, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn that I should heal them. That's from Isaiah chapter 6. These things, John says, Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. I like the King James translation. These things that same Isaiah said, or that Isaiah said again. What's significant about that? In one short passage, there are quotes from both the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah attributed to the same Isaiah. You can dig into more technical arguments. There are other reasons, more technical uh, reasons, why the Deutero-Isaiah theory fails on its own terms. But this is one of those times I'm content to say Jesus said it, that settles it. So verse 40. Beginning of this second section, where we, where we left off before I so rudely interrupted us. The second section, other people, other people divide or outline Isaiah differently. Some people will say this is the 10th major section or the 8th major section. Regardless, it, it begins a 27-chapter chunk that'll take us to the end of the book. And the theme of it is the redemption and the restoration of Israel not written from captivity, although sometimes it'll seem very much as if it must be. But this is Isaiah speaking prophetically to the people in captivity. He's speaking as if he's one of them, as if he's there with them, to his countrymen, to his fellow Jews in exile in Babylon, and his message, his, his central message, God's message through him, is take hope. This won't be forever. Take hope. There'll be an end to the captivity. Now, it's not an apology. God isn't saying, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done it. Didn't mean it. Now I regret it. No, consistently Isaiah is going to circle back and underline, no, God's judgment was utterly necessary. Because Judah was unrelenting and unrepentant in their sin. Judah's sin demanded God's punishment. The judgment was necessary, but at the same time, the eventual deliverance from that judgment, the end of that judgment, the end of captivity, is a certainty because God's mercy has declared it. And we see that from the opening verse of Isaiah 40. You're there, and once again, I'm lagging behind. Comfort, 
Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Where the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are mostly bad news, you know, doom and darkness and judgment with just an occasional ray of hope poking through, this latter section is, is, is the inverse. It's primarily, it's predominantly hope with just a few reminders of justice and judgment and wrath punctuating it here and there, sprinkled here and there, including tonight if we, if we make our way to chapter 48. Comfort my people. The idea in Hebrew is literally, tell my people to take a deep breath. Let them know it's going to be okay. Breathe. Settle yourselves. Verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her three things. That her warfare is ended. Two, that her iniquity is pardoned. And three, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that's actually an outline of these 27 chapters. Analogy. Think back when we studied Revelation together. Revelation 1 verse 19 Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen, those things which are, and those things which will be. I'm paraphrasing. Write those things which you have seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. Those things which are, that's Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those things that will be are Revelation 4 to the end, 4 to 22. So in similar fashion, we've got an outline here in verse 2. Israel's warfare is ended. That's going to be chapters 40 to 48. Remember back in, in, in Isaiah 29, where I may or may have not marked a spot, God says, I will encamp against you all around. I'll lay siege against you with a mound. I'll raise siege works against you. God declared war on Judah in a very real sense. Chapter 40 to 48 developed the first point, encouraging those who are in Babylon. The war's over. We're going we're gonna to end up this section tonight, actually, if, if I can get out of this introduction. The section that tells us Israel in exile, when the captivity ends, there isn't more warfare waiting, only peace. Very similar to what we've talked about on Sundays recently, think back to Romans 5 that begins telling us that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, our warfare is ended. So that's the first, the first part of this last section. The next section, which will begin next week unless I get a hangnail, verses 49 to 57, tell Israel her iniquity is pardoned. That's the reason why they're at peace. It's the reason why we're at peace. Our iniquity is pardoned. God has forgiven us. Why? How? Same answer to both, both occasions. God's justice is satisfied. How is God's justice satisfied? It's part three. Verses 58 to the end, she's received double for all her sin. Double? Why double? That seems strange until we realize, until we remember, under Mosaic law, the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance, right? Exodus 4.22, God refers to Israel as his firstborn. But here they're receiving a double portion of God's wrath. 
We read the same thing in Zechariah, Zechariah 9.12. We read the same thing in Jeremiah, and I'll read it from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 16.18. First, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they've defiled my land, they've filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. Same thing. Isaiah 40 begins with God saying, speak comfort, because the war is over. How can the war be over? Because your iniquity has been pardoned. How can iniquity be pardoned? Because sin is paid for. And that first part, the war being over, that's the theme of the first eight chapters. It's the theme of chapter 48. The, the war's over. Israel is is back at peace with her God. So, so let's actually dive in to Isaiah chapter 48. Flip forward a few pages and see if we can make some progress tonight. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellspring of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel. Pause there in a section that's primarily encouragement, like we said, this is going to be one of those punctuations of rebuke. Israel, Jacob, Judah, my people, you make mention, swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You're not living up to your name. You're not living up to my name, God says. And you're not upholding the covenant that, that, that we establish between us. You say the right things. You claim the right relationship. You take my name. You profess dependency and piety, but it's mostly, in fact, it's entirely, he says, verse 2, hypocrisy. They call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, is his name. But not in truth or righteousness. Remember Isaiah speaking forward a century in time to people that God has shown him prophetically will be dragged off in exile. People who are lamenting. People who are wailing. Why are we here? What happened? Where did God go? How did he let this happen to us? I thought we were his people. He said he was going to provide for us and protect us. God is beginning this chapter by saying, get real. Get re you abandon me. And it's always like that, right? When we look around and we say, where did God go? We're the ones who moved. He's always where he is. God, where are you? Look down at where you're standing. Where did you go? God is reminding Israel, Judah, Israel, after the exile, they're, they're, they're referred to interchangeably. And in fact, he says that, house of Jacob called by the name of Israel. It was Judah that was dragged off to exile. But in God's name, they're always one. The political division was man's idea, not God's idea. In any case, you abandoned me, God says. And I told you it was going to happen. Why are you surprised that things are the way that they are? Verse 3, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. I told you again and again what was going to happen if you didn't part ways with idols. 
if you didn't get real about following me. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. I did them because you're, I knew you were obstinate. Your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. You're stubborn, thick-necked people, God is saying. And you've always been that way. Sometimes I say something like that from the pulpit and people will tug at my sleeve afterwards and say, you're, you, know, you sound a little anti-Semitic there. No, I'm just quoting God. I'm just quoting what God says about his people. In fact, I'm quoting what God's people say about themselves. Deuteronomy 31, at the end of Moses' life, he says, take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it might be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, how much more so after my death? Moses. I think this is who we are. This is what it is to be us. Always been, always going to be. Which is why, God says back in Isaiah 48, which is why I did what I did. And why I did it the way that I did it. It's why I moved as quickly as I did. Suddenly I did them, he says, verse 3. Even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image, and my molded image have commanded them. You forced my hand, God says. But if I was going to move, if I was going to judge the way that I said that I was going to, I was going to sign my name. So there wasn't going to be any confusion or misattribution who it was that moved against you. You're stubborn. You, you clung stubborn, stubbornly to idols. I needed to do something about it, and I needed to do something about it in a way that you wouldn't say, well, this idol did it. This God did it. This power did it. No, no, no. I wanted you to know I did it just the way I said I would. Attribution error, right? We're all guilty of it. We, we, we find ourselves in a mess and we say, oh, Satan's really coming against me. Really? Was it Satan? Is, is, is that where he wanted to spend time and energy? Or is it possible that we were just dopey? <laughs> we're suffering the consequences of our own bad decisions. You know, sometimes it's just us. Sometimes, sometimes we misattribute the favorable things that happen. You know, the story about the guy who's driving around the parking lot in a driving rainstorm. Oh, God, will you please open up a parking space close to the entrance to the store? And he drives around and there's no parking space. He says, oh, God, if you, if you open up an entrance, I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday. He takes another lap and the parking lot's packed. And he, he says, God, if you open up an entrance... I'll, I'll bake cookies for church on Sunday. And he drives around and still nothing. He says, okay, one more lap. God, if, if you open up a, a parking space, I'll serve in children's church on Sunday. And somebody backs out of a space right in front of the store and he says, never mind, God, I got it. You know, that, that, that's our human nature. Anything bad that happens, oh, it's Satan. It couldn't be me. It's got to be Satan. Anything good that, that happened, I did this with my two hands. Or this was good fortune. This was Lady Luck smiling down on me. God says, no, this, that, that's not what I wanted to happen. It's not what I was going to let happen. I wanted you to know it was me. Verse 6, you've seen, I'm sorry, you've heard and seen all this. Will you not declare it? 
if, if you rewind and, 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 and look back at the Babylonian invasion and the conquest, it happened just the way that God said, repeatedly, all the way back to the days of Moses. God told Moses, when you rebel against me, here's how it's going to play out. So God is asking, are you willing to believe it? Are you willing to see my hand in it? You should. You should, you should be willing to see me moving in past prophecy. In fact, it's really important because I want you to believe the prophecy that I'm about to speak. If you can, if you can realize that, that it was me who did what I said I was going to do and what I've been saying that I'm going to do, maybe you'll believe that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do next. Still verse 6. I've made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. The test of a prophet is fulfilled prophecy, right? Again, back in Deuteronomy. Test, test the words of a prophet. If they come to pass, listen the next time. If they don't come to pass, throw rocks at his head. God is asking, which am I? Did I prophesy accurately? If so, you should believe me. You should listen next time. If not, you should throw rocks at my head. But he's saying, I did it the way I said I was going to. And, but, but you need to decide that for yourself, God is saying, because new prophecies are coming. Verse 7, they're created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you've not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. This is new stuff. New, new, new information about to come down the pike, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't decide before you hear it that you're going to believe it. New prophecy coming, so let's do it differently this time, God says, verse 8. Surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. It's a reference back to, to Jacob, of course. That's how we got to where we are. I told you if you kept pursuing idols and denying me, you'd end up where you ended up. I told you before you ended up there. I told you before you were you. I told Moses. But here we are. Here you are. And, 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 and God's going to go on to say, and you're fortunate that this is only where you are. You're, you're wailing and gnashing your teeth. You should be glad you're only in exile. You should be glad that my mercy prevailed and I didn't wipe you out altogether. Which brings up a good question. Why didn't God wipe them out altogether? Why didn't God wipe out Judah? They deserved it. They worshipped false gods. You should have no other god before me. Well, except this one, and this one, and maybe these two, and maybe these over here. No, they deserved it. God could have wiped Judah out and been perfectly just in doing so. And, and arguably, that would have been easier to wipe them out than to preserve them. Let's be clear, not an accident, he says, verse 9. Let's be clear, I did it not for you, but for me, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it for you, so that I do not cut you off, so I do not wipe you off, so I do not end you. Everything God does, Ephesians 1.14, everything that God does, he does for the praise of his glory. 
That, that's what he's pointing at in verse 9. That's why, that's why I've played, at, played it the way that I'm playing it. That's why I've done and, and am doing and will do what I have done and am doing and will do. I'm not destroying you. Why? Because it gives me more glory. It gives me more glory to not destroy you, but instead to refine you. Verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. We see that same idiom, furnace of affliction, in Ezekiel as well. He's still, God is still determined to bring forth a people unto his name, a people who will praise him, a people who will point the other nations of the world to him. Besides, he says, verse 11, the alternative, if I don't refine you, if I don't purify you and try again with you, the alternative is silence. Verse 11, for my own sake, my own sake I will do it, for how shall my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. If he just wipes Israel out, then Gentiles are the only voices left in the world. If he just wipes Israel out, the Gentiles get, to, you know, the, 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 the victors write the history. The Gentiles will get to tell the story, our God whooped up on their God. You know, we talk sometimes about the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Why? If we don't, then the only name, uh, the only noise, the only voice in our ears is the voice of the enemy, and the voice of the world, and the voice of our flesh. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves so that God's voice has a fighting chance. In much the same way, God says, yeah, wiping out Israel, wiping you out, Judah, that would satisfy my justice, but it would leave me without a voice in the world. In the long run, it wouldn't give the same glory to my name. So I'm going to sanctify your voice. I'm going to refine your voice. I'm going to purify your voice. So verse 12, he says, so, so, so let's get started. Let's do that. Let's work on this. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I'm he. I'm the first. I'm also the last. Let's get back to fundamentals. Let's, let's get back to basics. You know, when I, when I was a basketball player and, 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 and I would have problems with my shot, I'd, I'd go in and I'd stand one foot up in front of the basket and just, okay, the elbow is here and the wrist is like this and the fingers are like this. And, and until I could shoot 30, 40, 50 in a row perfectly, just, just let's get back to the, the very, very fundamentals. My wife would do the same thing with her golf swing. God is doing the same thing with, with the fundamental truths of existence. I am the eternal one, he says, verse 12. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm everything that's in between. I'm also the creating one. Indeed, verse 13, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Everything that is, I made. And verse 14, everything that happens is what I allow. Everything that happens is with my permission. All of you assemble yourselves in here. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves them. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I'm the God of current events says the Lord, including the coming deliverance by Cyrus that he's been talking about for the last seven chapters. Verse 14, uh, or verse 15, I, even I have spoken, yes, I've called him, I've brought him, and his way will prosper. He's been talking about Cyrus for the last eight chapters, the coming leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
He's, he's given us details about his background. He's laid out his, his conquests. His name, his very name has been spoken. Why is that significant, Patrick? Because it's more than a century before the dude is born. But God has done this. And here God summarizes everything that he said so far about Cyrus. He's, he's my arm. He's my chosen one. He's, he's on a mission that I've ordained to defeat Babylon and free my people. It's going to happen, verse 16. Just like everything I've ever said is going to happen has happened, this is going to happen too. Verse 16, come near to me, hear this. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Except what did we just read? Who is me? We were talking about Cyrus, and then all of a sudden, it was, it was first person. Is Cyrus talking? Up to this point, I thought God was talking. Has to be God talking, because he just got done saying, I'm the eternal one in verse 12. I'm the creator, verse 13. I'm the arbiter of world events, verse 14. I'm the God of prophecy, verse 15. But what happened in the second half of verse 16? The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Who is me? Yeah. Lord God, Lord, Lord God is Lord Jehovah, is, is God the Father. His spirit is clearly God the Holy Spirit. Who, who else can be the God of eternity, creation, humanity, and prophecy? Who, 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 can, who can be those things who's not the Father and not the Spirit? Jesus just stepped into the pages of Isaiah. Not for the first time, but, but very dramatically. Be, and, and this marks a shift or a transition to that next section we were talking about. We've just shifted from, from relatively short-term prophecy, talking about Cyrus. 100 years is short-term when, when we talk about prophecy. We've just shifted to, to talking about Cyrus to a greater than Cyrus, one foreshadowed by Cyrus, an even greater deliverer who's going to be the focus of the next section, chapter 49 to 57, including what's smack dab in the middle, Isaiah 53. Let's finish the chapter. We'll get a glimpse of, of coming attractions. We'll get a glimpse of where God is going. Verse 17, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. You are who you are because of your sin. It's not my fault you're here, but I'll lead you out. Wish I didn't have to, God says. Oh, that you'd heeded my commandments, verse 18. If you'd heeded my commandments, your peace would have been like a river. When we sing, it is well with my soul, when peace like a river, that, that's the reference there. And your righteousness, like the waves of the sea, your descendants also would have been like the sand, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would have not been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. If you'd followed my lead, if you'd held up your end of our covenant, the, the fruit, the benefit would have been peace, would have been righteousness, would have been blessings. Your descendants would have been too many to number, and history wouldn't have been interrupted. You wouldn't have been cut off. Except that it says he wouldn't have been cut off. Talking about history being interrupted, which time? Are we still talking about the Babylonian captivity, or are we talking about another exile? One that 
happened because Israel, look back at verse 17, because Israel didn't recognize her Redeemer. Because Israel didn't follow his lead. Because Israel rejected his teaching. Rejected his gospel. I think we're playing on two levels here. What if his name, verse 19, had not been cut off the way we read about in Isaiah 53? I think that God is speaking on two levels here. We can't ignore the short-term fulfillment. We can't, just, we can't just blow it off. Verse 20 doesn't let us. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. So that takes us back into the short-term fulfillment. Flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. When Cyrus arrives, because he's gonna, when he says that you can leave, leave and don't look back. Leave, leave singing. Leave telling anyone who will listen, God did this. Because why did God do this? For his glory. So make sure that it is God's saying. Leave. I'll get you back to the land. I'll get you back to Jerusalem. I'll get you back so you can rebuild the walls so that you can rebuild the temple. Hey, I got you out of Egypt and I got you through 40 years in the desert. I can get you back to Jerusalem. Verse 21. They didn't thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. I've done this before, God says. You can trust me in this. Flee Babylon. But that's just the beginning. Because there's another layer here, another level, where God is saying there's going to be another exodus. There's going to be another deliverance. During the tribulation, Israel is again going to cry out, what happened, God? Where did you go, God? How did we get here, God? And the words we just read will again be God's answer. How did you get here? You rejected your Messiah. You handed him over to be crucified. The only reason you're still here is my mercy. My justice, if my justice were my only attribute, my justice would have wiped you from the planet, would have blinked you out of existence. But what's a greater testimony than destruction? Redemption. So God again says, I'm going to refine you, Israel. He said it in verse 10. He's referring to the exile, the 70 years of Babylonian exile. He's also referring to the seven years of tribulation that Ezekiel makes clear is likewise a furnace of affliction to refine and purify God's people. Ezekiel says it, Daniel says it. And when that refining work is complete, we read in Revelation 18.4, God calling his people out of Babylon. Get out. Get out of the city. I'm delivering you. I'm going to judge them. You, you go enter the kingdom praising my name, shouting for joy, enjoying water in the desert. Time's gotten away from us, so I'm going to leave you to consider your own application tonight, other than just one thought. Verse 22, there's no peace, says the Lord. There's no peace for the wicked. Why is Judah in captivity in Babylon? One word answer, rebellion. Why is Israel driven from the land in 70 AD? Same answer, rebellion. 
why even today restored to the land is Israel the least peaceful place on the planet? Rebellion. If we lack peace in our lives, the answer is rebellion, wickedness. I'm not talking about trials. Then there's an important distinction there. Jesus says trials are going to happen, trials are going to follow obedience. In this life, you'll have tribulation, Jesus says, speaking to his disciples. Peace is something different. Peace is an inner quality that we can have through our trials and despite our trials, irrespective of circumstances. But peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Trials can't rob us of our peace. In fact, trials can often drive us deeper into the relationship with God that reminds us that he loves us and he's in the fiery furnace with us and in his timing he will deliver us. But we don't know that peace if we're in rebellion because rebellion quenches the spirit. The next time you find yourself lacking peace, ask yourself, am I also lacking in obedience? Is there something the Lord has asked me to do, something he's asked me in his word, something that he's asked me in his spirit that I've ignored, that I've resisted, that I've refused? Because that's wickedness. And the wicked will not know peace. Okay, come on. I'm, wicked is a big word, Patrick. I mean, I'm just talking about a little disobedience around the edges. That's not wickedness. We're talking about the God of the universe. The eternal one, the perfect one, the holy one. Rebellion against him in any degree? Yeah, that's wickedness. That's the definition of wickedness. God says X, we say not X. Doesn't matter if it's a great thing or a small thing. It's disobedience. It's wickedness. And in his mercy, God might allow us time in Babylon. God might allow us tribulation. Or God could allow us incredible prosperity without peace. Why? To refine us. To convince us to put away our idols to stop trying to depend on things that aren't God and rely on him and only on him and trust him and only him so that we can go forth and praise him and him alone. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that ancient texts could not be more relevant to our modern, postmodern lives. Thank you for your spirit speaking to us tonight. Thank you for your encouragement to pursue repentance, to welcome sanctification. To realize that you're always working and the things that you allow in our lives 
They're never wasted. You allow them to refine us, to sanctify us, to make us more like you. Teach us to welcome them and embrace them that that the seasons in the furnace would be short. The lessons would be learned and treasured and our joy increased all the more.